when we're talking about good habits, bad habits, um, I don't know whether you'd call this good or bad, but a habit is something we do almost without thinking. In fact, sometimes I've been caught in a habit not even knowing I'm doing it. Barb walks in after work or after shopping. She sees me sitting on the couch, and, and, and there I am nibbling on a bag of Cheetos. And she goes, where'd you get the Cheetos? I go, Cheetos? I got Cheetos? I didn't even know. Well, that's part lie, okay? Uh, but, but not all lie. It, it, another good habit I've been trying to develop over the years is uh, the, the fact that I try to daily spend time alone with God, so much so that it, it's early in the day, I, I spend time reading the Bible, I spend time praying about what I read and, and what my day is going to look like, and then I give the day to God and let him just totally change it, is what usually happens to me and to you. I consider that a good habit. But understand what a habit is, is something that we do almost automatically. It's, it's ingrained up here in such a way that it, it just... You know, we, we often aren't even thinking about it as we do it. It is similar, you might say, and I know some of you nerds are about ready to throw darts at me, but uh, it's similar to a computer operating system. What? A habit in a computer operating system? Yeah, an operating system on your computer, Windows, Apple, or your tablets, or, or your smartphones, uh, what they do is they determine how functions can be accomplished or not. And it's done all without you necessarily being aware of it. It's been programmed in, and so you don't have to ask the question. It just happens. Now, going from habits to operating systems in the computer, I want to say this. You work by an operating system called a worldview. And in the next four weeks, I want us to discover and explore what these worldviews are, especially in our Western world. Now, what's a worldview? A worldview is something that determines our thoughts uh, and, and, and our conclusions that we will consider in our lives. Like computers, they, they're constantly coming out with new and improved operating systems, and a worldview is constantly being altered through the input that we allow. Well, let me give an example. Since I was 17, I've been operating in what we call the Judeo-Christian worldview. Not perfectly, not completely, but as the decades pass to a greater and greater degree. And Western civilization, for more than a thousand years, has also been sort of operating in that worldview, but not without competition. In other words, there's other worldviews out there that are saying, no, we have more truth, or we answer life's questions better. And this January, as an example, and every January, when I sit down and I start reading my Bible from Genesis all the way to the end, as I start in Genesis and read Genesis 1 to 11, as is my habit, I am always stunned that these competing worldviews aren't something that just started decades ago or even in the last century. They've been described by Moses in Genesis since the beginning of time. You see their roots, maybe not as well defined, but you see them there. You cannot escape them. 
And the three other worldviews that uh, exist in the world today would be secular materialism, which we're going to look at today, secular humanism, which we'll look at next week, uh, secular pantheism, if you can believe that's true, I will explain it, uh, th- two weeks from today, and then, um, and, and then we'll finally try to uh, contrast and compare to the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview uh, and, and understand these are clashing. And how do I know these are clashing? Well, they're clashing because many of you have told me about family gatherings. You know, you, you have these great family reunions and you come together at this place and then you say, there's two things we cannot talk about. Number one is politics, okay? And uh, <clears throat> uh, I get that, okay? And by the way, um, if you haven't heard because you are a hermit and you don't have any media, there's an election coming up, Okay. <laughs> The second thing you can't talk about is religion, or you might say worldview, because you find that other people come from a, uh, you know, a, a, a secular worldview, and therefore to begin to talk to them about yours will cause dissension and friction, and the best thing to do is not to talk about it at all. Well, uh, I love to talk about it. And you might say, well, Jim, you don't have any friends. Well, that could be true, but I love to talk about that stuff. And the reason why I love to talk about it is that I, I'm, I'm put in touch all the time with people that think they know more about my worldview than I know about theirs. And I want you to know I study these worldviews. I enjoy them I, I, because all of them sort of have roots in the Judeo-Christian worldview. And, 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 they've, and they've lapsed out of it saying, we can do this with no God, with no personal God. So as we go through these the next four weeks, here's what I'm asking of you. We have uh, just finished a series where we're talking about a relationship with God, and that deals with your heart. The next four weeks, I want to hit this, okay? And believe me, if I can hit yours, God can even hit mine. Uh, It is hard at this age to be uh, accepting new facts and new data that just stretch me everywhere. But I also want you to be able to have a confidence, not just in your trust in God, but a willingness to talk to some of the most closed-minded people you know, if no other way, just asking relationships, that, uh, asking questions that, that make them begin to think once again about what they do believe and why. One uh, person that I know dearly uh, just was involved in a family wedding, and in that family wedding, uh, the groom, who was a scientist, has said, I'll never step inside church again. There is no God. Uh, all Christians are just a bunch of non-thinking uh, imbeciles. And then he found out his father-in-law was a believer and a scientist. So like Fagan did in the movie, I'm reviewing the situation. <laughs> and it's good. It's good to do that. Well... <clears throat> So this is what we're going to look at. Now, as we begin by entering this world of secular materialism, uh, in essence, it is a worldview that says the final authority of truth is determined only by what we can observe and measure and test in the world. In other words, science is our God. And science is the ultimate authority of what we believe. So... That, that's really what they say, secular materialism. We, we, we look at atoms and energy, and that's, that's all that there is. Uh, and secular materialism has a series, you might say, of core values that they say if we cannot test it, we cannot measure it, therefore it does not exist 
or we don't want to talk about its existence. And core values are these things which, which they say, these are so important to us, we can't let any of them uh, falter. We can't take any of them out. And the first is this, that everything that exists has to be a thing. Whether it's material or energy, there is nothing beyond those two realms. Therefore, there is nothing in the non-material realm. Secondly, only science is truth. The physical universe is the only truth that exists. There is no certain knowledge and thus no truth beyond material existence. Thirdly, the universe is both random and purposeless. Let me translate that. You are so lucky. Very, very, very into the, you know, powers of ten. You are lucky. There is no thought, no intellect, no design in the universe at all. It all just happened, and eventually it will all collapse. Nothing supernatural. There's no miracles. Fourth, uh, since it is a material world, thank you, Madonna, only verified cause and effect actions happen. There can be no supernatural events. That means there's no creator, no creation, no virgin birth, no healings by supernatural power. There's no resurrection of the dead. Jesus, therefore, did not rise from the dead. It must be hard for such people when I ask them, well, have we found Jesus' body yet? We've had 2,000 years. People have dedicated their lives. Have we found it? No. But we will. And finally, there's only one ethic of, uh, of uh, secular materialism, and that is the ethic of natural selection. By that, I mean um, <clears throat> uh, the survival of the fittest. And therefore, uh, Al Davis, the owner of the Oakland Raiders, was right when he said, just win, baby. Of course, they haven't done that for 10 years, and Al Davis is dead. Okay. Well, one of the greatest thinkers probably summarized it as well as anybody could name is Bertrand Russell. He was in the early 1900s. And this is what he said is his conclusion. As an atheist, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end that they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are all but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms destined to extinction. In that uh, destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. I got used to join the Optimist Club. Um, and he probably need, needed antidepressants. But, you know, it, it's just astounding what his conclusion was. But if you take it to, the, you know, that logic to the furthest limits, um, it's, it's all going to end in a puff. Uh, and yet some of our greatest thinkers, our best philosophers, and even some who are what we call nervous atheists or uh, uncertain agnostics, of course if you are an agnostic, you are uncertain, uh, they're saying, not so fast you secular materialist. When I was in college in the previous millennium, I, I was studying this man named Anthony Flew, who wrote several arguments against the existence of God. Anthony Flew gets older and older and older, and he turns to God. And before he dies, he writes this. Uh, 
he says, uh, this is what I believe. I believe that life and reproduction originate from the divine source. And then he goes on to explain. Why do I believe this? Given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century, science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to God. You might say a signpost or a light that points that way. The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. The second is the dimension of life, of intelligently organized and purpose-driven beings, which arose from matter. And the third is the very existence of nature itself. Wow. Do you have a little glimpse of this worldview now? Do you understand where they're coming from and why they believe this and understand that their, you know, their biases are not so hidden. Uh, they probably, because linear thinkers love to think that they are lineal and they just do logic upon logic upon logic, when actually almost every uh, sci uh, social scientist would say humans begin, you know, think in bursts, big explosions. And they're not lineal, and I have tried to prove that I am lineal, and my wife says, yeah, tell me. Because uh, I'm probably not, and neither are most humans. So we go to this uh, Christian and Judeo-Christian worldview about there is a God, and, and, and the God is involved in the universe. And it begins with uh, Moses just blowing the socks off these millions of Jews who are wandering in the wilderness. When he writes at Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Now, in the other cultures of that day, they had certain religions and certain gods, but, but not one that could be described this way. And in a way, Moses is setting his God apart from all the other false gods of the day because this is a God with power. This is a God with intent and, and purpose. This is a God of great design. And it was too much to absorb then uh, by those people. And, and, and yet we have to admit that as we look at our universe, somehow we have developed in such a way to, to look at the universe and say, it puts us in a sense of awe and wonder, and we feel so small as we look at everything else that's around us. So Moses' explanation has stood the test of time by explaining the universe as more than an accident and actually more than an intelligent plan. Moses said quite clearly that a supernatural person with supernatural intelligence and supernatural power is the only truest answer available to us. And these, this God is the one who explains how humanity finds its place in the universe. And finally, after all of what he created, we see in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our own image. In other words, where does God fit in? God fit in humanity. God fits in humanity at the highest and the best place because he plans on us being the ones who use this planet, who, who, who discover it through science, who, who, who learn all the, all the laws of the universe, who, who not just use the planet but enjoy it and care for it and keep it and run it and we're governing it. So what happens at this great moment in some way almost uh, dovetails 
And you might say this might be where science decided, well, we have to, uh, in our secular worldview, uh, some scientists said we have to dislodge from God all that it took to bring about the universe was a God who has always existed and that God says, let there be. And it was. That's all it takes. All it takes is the energy that comes from his spoken word. If you are familiar with the Big Bang Theory, not the television show, but the... the um, <laughs> Uh, but the Big Bang Theory. Understand that where this comes from is somewhere along the line, there had to be things um, that they can't say were pre-existent, but that existed, and it, considered, and it brought together matter and energy, and it exploded. And they say it was really dense and really confined, and, and then suddenly it just exploded. Well, you know, do you see how both involve sort of an explosion so that when God first speaks, there is light. Whoosh! And, and there is some dovetailing there between the two. They just find it difficult to agree exactly with each other. Uh, so what I would like to say is finally science in the 21st century is beginning to recognize what Moses said 1,500 years B.C. Because the universe begins with the word of God speaking with power so that matter comes into being through supernatural energy. So we have the universe. Where does humanity fit in? And, and if, we're, if we understand this correctly, here's, here's uh, the shepherd David who later becomes king and he's out watching his sheep. And of course, that's the most boring job in the world, especially at night. So what he does is he looks up in the stars and he has this amazing uh, thought that just makes him uh, have a high appreciation of God and you might say a somewhat low appreciation of himself in comparison and, and so he says, you know, that um, uh, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You see, if the core, one of the core values of secular materialism is randomness and accident, the core value of the Christian worldview is humanity is a special creation, the, the peak, the zenith of, of all that God has done and given a purpose to be on this earth, not just to survive, but to make the earth flourish. The worldview that I am betting my life on is the one that says God exists and I hold a relationship with him. The worldview that I have said, this is where I stepped into in 1965 and 1966, calls me and all of my species a special, created with a special honor and purpose that cannot be given, given to it by science. I am not an accident, I say. And I'm not just lucky. And I am not without meaning. And I am not without an ethic in my life of just survival. What is the danger here if science is not checking itself and not comparing itself with other worldviews? You see, the, the secular person of science has to invest all of her or his energy into facts without God. I understand that because the facts should be discovered and let them lead where they will. 
But there is this inward bias that says there can be no God. And that leads to placing all of the value on, on the material stuff itself. And the danger is that science will be just another false religion that worships the creation rather than the creator. Or as Bob Dylan sang, the great philosopher, you got to serve somebody. You're going to be worshiping something or somebody. You will serve the creator who invites you into a relationship with him, or you'll be serving the creation uh, that has no reason for its own existence. Why go after something that has no reason? So understand that what, what, we're, what we're happening is we're saying that those in the Christian and Judeo-Christian worldview, you don't have to be deniers of scientific fact. But instead, you should understand that with all these facts that are coming about, with, with everything we're learning and, and, and information is just exploding and all that we're learning through uh, from astronomy to, to, to the smallest part of the cell is it, just opening up a world that has always existed and we haven't been able to see it before. Neither David nor Moses had either a microscope or a telescope. And we have that today and it shows us things that they could only dream of. So all people observe. They're all going to observe. And all this wonderful science that's out there, I encourage us, keep looking at it, keep investigating it, read what their reports are. But all of us will also be making conclusions according to our worldview. And, you know, uh, someone who is in a secular materialist worldview will have a different conclusion uh, than 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 those who have a Judeo-Christian worldview or even a humanistic worldview or a pantheistic worldview. Let me encourage you to be like me, to be a lover of science and follow Jesus Christ and, and look at some things that are recent discoveries and let, 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 let the God of creation fill you with awe, but also understand this goes far beyond just saying, boy, are we lucky. It takes us signpost to God as our creator. Now, as you all know, that every night before I go to bed, I read about 30 pages of Scientific American. And I, you know, and I just read that thoroughly all the time. And as I do that, just before I hit uh, the, fab, the, uh, you know, the uh, fabulous four comic books, um, as, I, as I read this, I, I, I was totally amazed at some of the facts that are being discovered. Uh, let, me, let me just give you three signposts that has science really scratching its head because you think that after working on these things for so long, they pretty much have it figured out, but often what they're doing is going back to the drawing board. The first is what they call supersymmetry. Physicists have believed that there are more parts of the atom than they thought, but they couldn't prove it. So with the help of the atomic collider, recently in Switzerland and France, uh, uh, they have now uh, tested for new atomic particles, one of them called the Boson-Higgs particle. And uh, they, they thought that it happened, uh, that this particle existed uh, only in theory. They could do it by math, but they, they couldn't do it through experiment. So uh, when they found this, when they believe they found this through experiment, they say, you know what this means? There's more uh, pieces of matter in the atom than we ever imagined. And we're probably going to be finding more. And they say, finally, that allows us to explain 
what we call dark or heavier matter because it shows that there's a balance in the universe which the scientists call supersymmetry. Now, understand, no one has dared call it supernatural symmetry. But they all call it symmetry. That the earth has a balance to it that allows it to continue to exist. And one of the applications of this has been what they found in new, I think, some sort of ray type of telescope, which they have discovered that so many galaxies, and they believe all of them have now, so many galaxies have what they call galactic bubbles. Now, when you see galaxies, what do you see when it's shown to you through a telescope? You see these uh, spinning disks, right, that, that are sort of a spiral towards the center, and the belief is that the, spinner, the center is this uh, black hole which is sucking all the matter out of, of the universe, and eventually everything will just collapse into it. Well, they go, well, where does it get its energy? How does this happen, and how come it's not deteriorating more quickly? And through this new uh, type of telescope, they found that the um, galaxies they're looking at have a bubble on top and a black hole in the bottom, a bubble of matter on top and a black hole in the bottom. You know what that means? Every time you parents give your children a pacifier, the universe is like a pacifier. You got that disc, and you got the thing that helps you pull it out. You know, you, you want your kid not, but you got in the middle. I mean, you got on the other side. What? You got that binky or whatever it's called, and and you go like this, and they suck on it, and they suck on. It. Well, if you were to take a galaxy, that's what they're saying it is: a disc, matter, more matter on top than we ever imagined, and it's sucking down through. What is it? Supersymmetry. Now, I've talked to many of you, and rightfully so, uh, you have brought up, well, what about the evolutionary tree? And, uh, and because, as you know, I read Scientific American every night, um, just so happens they dedicated a whole, um, a whole issue just uh, this last month to it. And as I was reading through it, can I just share two things that to me are signposts? And again, I'm not here to, to be a, a denier of the facts that we have thus far. I'm open, and I love to engage people. But here's the fact. We, you know, if you uh, grew up, in, as I did, and you saw the science class of this little monkey getting bigger and bigger and straighter and straighter and all the way till we get modern man, if you own that, keep it, because it's worth a lot of money. The unfortunate thing, nobody believes it anymore. No one of science. So what they've really discovered is that the uh, development of mankind, homo sapiens as we know him, uh, and, and that uh, uh, evolutionary tree is more like an evolutionary slash pile. Things are not connected. Things do not belong to each other. Uh, so you have things out there that they think was never connected in the we, we don't know where it came from. We don't know how to connect it. And, and so we have uh, what we call Homo sapien at the top, which is us, but, also, but almost nothing can, can we connect to it. It's not just a matter of missing links. It, friends, it's a matter of entirely missing branches. <laughs> and they're admitting that. Now, one other thing. They were trying to do a study 
of, you know, what is it that allowed uh, Homo sapiens to be the most long-lasting uh, uh, species of, of humanity as we, as we know it? And what caused the others to, to get off? And they said, you know, we, we, we've got this... Um, unique idea and, and and they're still experimenting with it because it's more in social science but they they have this wonderful phrase that they're saying two were better than one. Oh yeah I'm sorry that's an ecclesiastes I'm sorry. They, they just made it up I didn't, they didn't know that existed they said one of the ways in which ancient man survived was this thing called careful now I'm it's not a swear word, but almost monogamy. <laughs> monogamy. Having one partner for life gave humanity an advantage over every other. Now, yes, our brains are four times larger than chimpanzees. Yes, all these things are true. But when you read it here and you go, okay, they're not saying it, but what they're pointing to is what I call signpost to God. So I, I'm a young college freshman in uh, uh, freshman biology at CU in a previous millennium, and, and I'm studying, and, and the professor uh, who is uh, teaching sort of mammal biology and animal biology uh, instead of cellular ends every lecture with, and here's another reason why we cannot believe in special creation but in evolution. Every lecture. Every lecture. Every lecture. Uh, do you think he had a bias? Yeah, but not so hidden. Uh, so uh, once I got up the nerve to go up to him and said, you know, uh, if you could answer any question still unsettled in science today, what would it be? What would it be? I said it far more sheepishly. I... I I didn't get a good answer. I didn't, you know, hang in there until I should have, but I'm pretty cautious. I didn't want to lose my grade. So um, what would it be? And in my reading, both Scientific American and everywhere else, I find that the questions today are the same that they were 50 years ago. Questions that science has yet to answer. And if you could answer any scientific uncertainty still out there, what would it be? First, how did matter and energy first appear? How do we get something from nothing? Can't answer it. How did we go from mineral to vegetable and animal? How did life begin? More than that, since we have now living cells and we realize that in every living cell there are over 40 interdependent engines working to keep that cell alive, that means that there was no gradual evolution from one uh, little engine. They were always 40. How do we start there? And how do we go from one single cell to differentiate to a complex cell? In other words, how do we tell the difference between a brain cell and a colon cell, and some of you have said to me, Jim, you still haven't learned. Okay. <laughs> so when and how do cells differentiate for special functions? And finally, how did the human race come into being? Because the human race has this level of consciousness that is not repeated anywhere else. So let me tell you, be, be fascinated by science. 
but be skeptical about secular materialism. Be proud of the God who describes what he's done in Genesis and throughout Scripture. And understand that you are smart enough to engage uh, those who believe in true science, but not in a true God. A true scientist is among the most humble people in the world because he or she lets the, the facts take them where they should be. And yet we have found that, no, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's just uh, unwillingness to, to, to review uh, what, what they originally believed. I, I, I found this because it, it talks about, I think, the pride that can uh, come about in scientists. A, a physicist, a chemist, and a biologist went into a bar. No, uh, a physicist, a chemist, and a biologist uh, were all involved in the genome project you know, mapping out the DNA molecule. And when they finally got it done, they, they approached God, and uh, they, they, in, in front of God, they said, Lord, we have finally figured out all the mysteries of life. We don't need you anymore. And God replied, oh, really? Okay. Um, so God says, well, then let's have a contest, shall we? Tell you what. God says, I'm going to take a lump of dirt here and I'm going to make it into a human being and you take a lump of dirt and you make it into a human being and we'll see who does the best job. And the three scientists, the physicists, the chemists, and the biologists say, okay, God, you're on. So God reaches down and he picks up his dirt and he begins to work it in his hands. The three scientists bend down and they're about ready to pick up the dirt and God says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. Find your own dirt. <laughs> Find your own dirt. I do not belittle science or scientists, and neither should we. It, un- it unlocks for us the-, the wonders of the universe. And to me, it makes God bigger. What does it do for you? Let's pray. Lord, we admit, not just us, with our Christian world, you were not smart enough to figure it all out. But you have given us a mind that you're told to stretch, to learn, to be able to grow, to become more intelligent and absorb more of what's going on around us. We don't have all the answers, neither does science. But in this worldview, which I've been living in since 1965 and growing in, You have been more true to me than ever before. And you do not simply exist to be proven by science. But you made us to be known and loved. We are not accidents. And we are not ones who will usually eat our own so that we can survive. May we marvel at what you have made and marvel that as a person you would just just not make us as your best creation but that you would love us, each of us, now and for eternity. Lord, you introduce the ethic of loving you and loving one another. Not for survival, but just it's the core of being alive. Thank you 
And Lord, we do pray. I'm sure at least a couple people want to talk to me. <laughs> and uh, I humbly say, um, I've got a lot to learn too. Keep me open to all the new discoveries, to everything that would uh, just open up this marvelous creation that you have made. And I ask this in Jesus' name with these wonderful people, and God's people said, Amen. Amen.